Good morning. Whoa, I'm a little hot this morning, aren't I? Let me, uh, let me say a word uh, for a minute about my title. A, you know, or those in the office know that my title has changed multiple times between the beginning of the process and the end. That's one of my problems. But lackluster titles don't uh, help a lot in, in several regards, and in particular, they don't help in terms of the Internet. Uh, a lackluster title might get 5,000 hits, and a good title might get 50 or 100,000 hits because of one word. And so I put the word eHarmony in there uh, on purpose. But I have to also say this. Uh, <clears throat> I, a couple of my daughters have met their husbands on the Internet. So I've got to be very careful that I don't uh, uh, whack too hard <clears throat> at uh, such sites because that would be a little uh, hypocritical on my part. But I would suggest that God's way of bringing people together uh, can go vastly beyond the powers of the Internet and eHarmony.com or whatever any of the others are. And so I suspect that eHarmony cannot beat what God does in the book of uh, Ruth. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine uh, was uh, involved as a leader in a discussion elsewhere about the subject of tithing. And in one way or another, I found myself backhandedly involved in not only discussion, but debate about the subject. And there are all kinds of intricacies that you know, tithe on the net, tithe on the gross, tithe it all. And, and I had done what I thought was a masterful piece of work that would impress all. And I sent it on. And shortly after I did that, I read the book of Ruth. And it was this text which totally turned my thinking on the subject upside down. And I had to write back to my friend and say, just take back everything I said, because it doesn't fit the standard that the book of Ruth sets for us in terms of the whole subject of giving and of generosity. So I'll tell you a little bit later how this text uh, changed my mind about that subject. Now, in terms of my approach to this lesson, what I want to do is sort of uh, do it in layers. And, and I want to just kind of start like the outside of an onion and, and peel it a little bit and see where it takes us. Uh, I want to go through the simple story first and just get the sequence of actions down. Then I want to go back and look at some of the details that we find in the story that are critical and important to our understanding. Then I want to look at what the text teaches us about the character, especially the character of the two primary individuals, and that would be Ruth and Boaz, not, of course, to forget the character of our God who is at work in all of this, and then to at least make some suggestions to you about how this may have application for us today, even though it took place so long ago and so far away. So let's begin by just thinking back for a second uh, on the events that we have in, in Ruth chapter 1 that have set the stage. Remember that this is in the period of the judges. We don't know precisely what time 
uh, it takes place in that period of Judges, but we know it happens in a period of time when men are living in disregard of the Word of God. We know that it is taking place in a period of time when rather than possessing the land and driving out the Canaanites, the Israelites are actually uh, coming to peace with the idea of dwelling amongst the Canaanites or the Canaanites dwelling amongst them. It is not a time of great military victory, although God raises up judges to give victory at critical points in time. It is not, as a rule, marked by people who are uh, bold and courageous in the possession of the land which God has given to them and promised to give them victory over their enemies to possess. So when we come to chapter 1, we come to a period in, uh, in the uh, time of the judges when there was a famine. And in that famine, there was a man named Elimelech. He was from Bethlehem, and uh, he was of the tribe of Judah. And he, he departs and decides that it would be easier to survive in the land of the Moabites. And remember, the Moabites were one of the enemies. Eglon of Moab had ruled over Israel for 18 years. It was not exactly friendly territory. But we talked about the history of the Moabites uh, last, uh, last time that we were in chapter 1. And uh, so they went and they dwelt amongst the Moabites. And while they were there in the land of Moab, Elimelech died. Elimelech's two sons uh, married Moabite wives. And then those two sons died. So now we have Naomi, Elimelech's widow, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, uh, who have a dilemma uh, to face. And Naomi decides, because she has heard that God has brought his blessing upon Israel, uh, that they are going to return to her hometown, Bethlehem, which is also known as the house of bread. That's what the word means. So there's bread in Bethlehem, and Naomi decides to return. They are on their way when Naomi begins to persuade her daughters-in-law that the best course of action for them would be for them to stay in Moab, stay with their families, stay with their land, and stay with their gods, and that she would go on to Bethlehem. And you remember that uh, uh, Oprah, Orpah, that's all right, it's it's just going to happen, I have to say. But anyway, uh, Orpah decides that she will turn back and Ruth decides that she will cling to Naomi. And so they, they work their way back. And you remember in the process of that, that Ruth gives that great statement of her faith uh, in God, her commitment to Israel, and of course her commitment to stay with and to care for Naomi. This is not a temporary sojourn as Elimelech's was intended to be in Moab. This was a change of citizenship, and she would not only live there until Naomi died, she would live there until she died, and she would be buried there because it was her people and her God that Ruth had embraced. A tremendous statement of faith on her part. And, uh, and then you remember they arrive, the women of the town are shocked to see Naomi back, and Naomi says, don't call me 
uh, uh, Naomi, but call me Mara. Call me bitter because God has dealt me uh, a bad hand. And, uh, and then you remember it ends with a statement that uh, it was at the beginning of the barley harvest. And I'll come to that in, in just a second. So that takes us to chapter 2. Now, when you come to chapter 2, you see that, that, that it begins with uh, actually the statement of, of uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. In fact, in, in my text, it really sort of indicates that's where the paragraph ought to begin. Because it is the perfect time. Think about somebody who comes from the land of Moab and they have virtually nothing with them. How are they going to have food and provision? Isn't it interesting that God brings them there at the very time, about March, where the barley harvest is beginning so that God has the food and the crops on hand when they glean that they will have those, those crops at hand. And, and based upon that, we have uh, Ruth uh, uh, coming to her, uh, her mother-in-law and asking permission. But before that, in verse 1, we're given this little note. And it's not known at this point. It's not known to Ruth. She does not know these facts. She is not looking for a near relative. And I'd say more importantly, it's not known to Naomi. So that no manipulation is taking place here. But it simply tells us, in a sort of a parenthetical way, that there is this near relative who is there, who is related to Elimelech, and we know in the story, we know that he will become the, the Gaal, the redeemer that will, that will uh, redeem Naomi and take uh, Ruth for his wife. But it simply tells us here he is and his name is Boaz. None of that is known to either Naomi or to Ruth, but to the reader it is made known because it is very clear. God is going to lead Ruth to that man's field. And he is going to bring those two people together in spite of the fact that nobody is trying to make that happen. So you have her going to this field. She's asked Naomi's permission. Naomi has granted it. And now she goes to the field, and here is this particular field that she comes to, and lo and behold, it happens to be the field of Boaz. She asks permission to go there and to glean, and she is granted permission by the foreman, as it were, to do that. And as she is working, Boaz comes to the field, and he sees Ruth, and he knows that she's a stranger, and he asks the foreman who this woman is. Actually, he asks the foreman whose woman, uh, that, whose woman this is, in the sense of under whose protection and care is this woman. And that's when the foreman indicates that it is Ruth. He has known about Ruth. It's very obvious. He has kept up on all the details about Ruth and Naomi. What he doesn't know is what she looks like. And so now all of this begins to come together in his mind, and he realizes this is the woman who is uh, the daughter-in-law of the widow of his relative. So anyway, he then gives permission to her, uh, and, and I would say perhaps more than permission, he gives precautions to her that relate to her care and protection. And so he says, don't go to other fields, stay right here, stay close 
to my, uh, to my young ladies that would be out gathering up, I take it, the sheaves and so on. And, uh, and you stay here, don't go anywhere else. She is amazed that someone would be so kind to her. It reminds me of when Richardson came to the United States. You remember uh, Richardson? Oh, you dear. And, and uh, he had heard all kinds of stories about racial prejudice. And so when he came to America and he came to our church, he had some pretty terrifying thoughts in his mind about the reception he would get. And he couldn't believe it when he, when he came into our fellowship and, and saw the love and, and, and the acceptance and embracing that took place. I think it's the same thing with Ruth. It's like, wow, you know, this is not what I expected. Why would you treat me in this way? And, and uh, he explains to her that he knows the story of how she has dealt with Naomi in the death of the husbands and in the death of Elimelech. And, and so then he has her go out, but he then instructs her when lunchtime comes that she is to come and eat with the workers and she is to drink the water that has been drawn by the men um, and she is to partake of those uh, provisions that have been made. She then, uh, and he also, remember, makes special provision for her. The, the, the landowner was to keep the corners of the fields for those who were poor and also the, the bundles or, or at least parts of the bundle that may drop in the field as they're working their way through. Those were not to be picked up but to be left for those who would be the gleaners. She was to keep close to the women so she got first dibs on, the, on, on whatever was left behind and he instructed that they weren't just to leave what they accidentally dropped. They were to purposefully drop other things. And, and, and so uh, you note that he's caring for her in a special way. When she goes home, she not only has the supplies that she has gleaned and threshed for herself, apparently about 30 pounds of grain, but she also has the doggy bag from lunchtime. Remember, she's there, and she gets to eat of those roasted heads of grain, and she gets the doggy bag and takes home to Naomi, her mother-in-law, as well. Naomi recognizes immediately this is not the normal fare for gleaners. And so she starts to inquire about what's taking place, and that's when Ruth tells her the name of the man and how he has dealt with her. And Naomi now, for the first time, realizes here's this near relative who had not entered her mind, although we were introduced to him in verse 1, and she says, this is one who is a Gaal, uh, or Goel, as some would say. Interestingly, he's not called that in verse 1. He's just called a relative. But when Naomi speaks of him, she realizes he is a potential redeemer, a potential husband, as it were, for Ruth and one that could be the savior, so to speak, of their family. So she works there through the barley harvest and through the wheat harvest. The barley harvest is the first harvest. Wheat harvest would follow after that. So sometime in March to sometime in either late June, possibly as far as into early July, uh, she is there for that wheat harvest, and obviously God provides for, for them in that way. And she lives with her mother-in-law, Naomi, during all that time. Okay, that's the sort of general uh, story. Now let's talk about some details.
In verse 1 of chapter 2, we read uh, of Abimelech, uh, I'm sorry, we read of, of, of Boaz, and we read about he, the fact that he is a man of great standing. Now, I want you to notice the way that the translations do this. I may be on the end of a very, very small limb, but I do not understand why the translators almost universally do it, in my opinion, wrong, uh, or at least missing some of the emphasis. The New American Standard and the New King James emphasize wealth. In fact, everybody emphasizes wealth. That's what bothers me. He is a man of great wealth. The Net Bible says a wealthy, prominent man. ESV says a worthy man. I like that better, I think. Um, and then the uh, Holman uh, Standard Bible says a prominent man of noble character. NIV, a man of standing. It's actually the King James Version. Where's Ron Calkins? That, 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 um, that does it, I think, the best of the translations where it says a mighty man of wealth. Now, there is an expression that is used here, uh, a Hebrew expression that uses two words, gibor and hail, or hail, if you can say it right. And, and, uh, and those are the two words that are used together. Now, when you use the last of those words, hail, then it would tend to emphasize the wealth and the prominence. And you see that, uh, that, it, that where it's used throughout the scriptures, where it may speak of a man's social standing, of his respect and regard, and of his economic uh, wealth. So I, I'm not trying to minimize that altogether. What I am saying is, when these two words are used together, they are in the Bible, they are never used other than in a military context. They are never used other than to speak of somebody who is a military warrior. Uh, uh, let's call him a war hero. Now, only one of the two terms is used um, in one instance, but, but uh, in Jephthah, he would be called a mighty man of valor. When you look at David's warriors and when you look throughout every instance where that twofold word expression is used, it is used in a military sense. Here's why I'm a little troubled by, by the translation. It seems to me that the translators have paid too much attention to the immediate context and too little attention to the broader context. That is, what they see is, they, they see uh, Boaz as a wealthy farmer. Now, I'm not quite certain in my mind that that's the biggest factor. He certainly has a farm, and so far as we can tell, he's doing uh, fairly well. But that doesn't seem to me to be the biggest context that takes this one term. And why would the author, if the author of Judges and the author of Ruth is the same, why would he change meanings from the book of Judges to the book of Ruth? And in particular, here's where I get, I'm getting on to this, my point, I think. In particular, when you look at the book of Judges, what you see is a period of time in which men weren't manly when it came to going to war and winning the territory that God gave them. Is that not true? And so what you have is, in a sense, uh, looking at, at Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see a rather wimpy nation. 
And in particular, while Judah uh, starts out relatively well, by the time you get to the end, you see tribes who are just willing to just live amongst the Canaanites because they're not, they don't have the faith to believe God will give them the land, even though he said he would. Now, here's my take. I believe that, that Boaz was an older man. I think that's clear in the text. Certainly in chapter 3 it will be. He is an older man who is a war hero. In other words, if you looked at his uniform, he would have a whole bunch of awards over here. Why is it that Bethlehem seems to be doing well at a period of time when Israel as a nation is under judgment and it is under the influence and control of other nations? Why is that? I would like to suggest to you that the author coming out of Judges is saying, Boaz is a man who is unlike the typical Israelite who's doing what's right in his own eyes and doing what's right in his own eyes is not going to battle because they're tough and we can't win the war. I think what he's telling us is here is a man who was one of those military leaders in his own area that defended the land and drove off the Canaanites and that's why they're doing so well. Now, is he, is he well-to-do? Is he prominent? Is he known as a man of character? I believe all those things. I just don't want to see us look at him only in terms of his bank account and not in terms of his courage in war. So I see this guy as, as a guy who's really uh, uh, maybe a little older, but a guy who when he came into the room, other people stood. He's a great man, in my opinion. And I think the author wants us to understand that. Second thing is, uh, Ruth's initiative and, and Naomi's passivity. It's interesting to me that it is Ruth who raises the issue of going out and gleaning in the field. One, she understood the law pretty well, don't you think? It would have been easy to sit there in the house trying to keep Naomi company and just waiting for God to bring bread and drop it on the doorstep she understood the law. And while she came to Bethlehem to experience God's blessing, she understood that the way in which that would happen, the way in which God had designed was to roll up your sleeves and get to work. And so she's the one who says to her mother-in-law, look, here's how God said he'd provide for us. Do you mind if I go out and actually do that? And Naomi says, yes. Now, of course, it bothers me a little bit that Naomi's sitting there in a rocking chair while Ruth is out gleaning in the fields for two reasons. One, I don't know that she's disabled and can't work. She may be elderly. She may not be able to work fast, but she could work. It would seem, from the text at least, that that would be a possibility. The other is she issues no word of warning here about the dangers, and I'll get to that in just a second, the dangers of what Ruth is going to do. And later, when it's apparent that Boaz has been concerned about her safety, then Naomi says to Ruth, you know, it's really right. You ought to be working there in his field. And, and the emphasis, or at least the inference, seems to be, he'll take care of you. It is risky business. <clears throat> so anyway, I would say this. The best reason for pointing out Naomi's passivity is nobody manipulates God's providential care. Nobody is trying to make something happen. Now, Ruth is acting on the basis of God's word and his provisions. 
But she's not saying, if I go out in that field, who knows, I may find me a man. I don't think so. In fact, I think she's probably saying, it's kind of scary because a man may find me out there in the field. And Boaz has something to say about that. He basically says, don't touch her. So here you have uh, Naomi, who we see in chapter 3 will be inclined to try to manipulate matters to come out the way she hopes. Here, she really doesn't know or participate in this. She is the, the passive one, which really shows us that God is the active one. The danger Ruth took in gleaning for Naomi. You see that just logically in terms of the whole Old Testament context. Those who were aliens, and that would be foreigners, that would be Ruth, and those who were widows, that would be Ruth, uh, and, and orphans as well, of course, those are people who have no one to protect them, and they are the most vulnerable people in a society. So when a, a person like that goes out into the field to glean, there is obviously a vulnerability that comes there. Now, when you look at what Boaz says to her, don't you go to anybody else's field. What does that suggest to you? She wouldn't be safe in anybody else's field. And remember now, we're in the period of the judges, and everybody isn't the Mr. Nice Guy that Boaz is. So he's saying, you work in my field, you stay close to my maidens. That's where safety will be. And I've told my young man, don't touch her. I think a little later on he says, in effect, don't even think about it. Well, and he will say, don't humiliate her and don't forbid her. Now, here's a woman who is powerless. And can't you see some of those men looking and seeing her getting special rights and grousing away or, or saying something about her? harassing her in some way, Boaz has covered all those bets. Boaz is concerned about her safety. It's apparent that when she speaks to Naomi at the end of chapter 2, and Naomi says, he's right, you ought to stick with him. There was real risk. And so it wasn't just her going to work. It was her going to work in a foreign country as they widow with no protector. That's why Boaz says, whose woman is this? In other words, who, who's in authority over her? Who's going to take care of her? Who's protecting this woman? And the answer was, in effect, nobody. That's when Boaz steps up to the plate because he not only provided for her food, he provided for her protection. It was, I think, a dangerous task that she had begun. All right, no romance here. Folks, I just don't see it. Boaz is an old coot. He, and he'll say that. I know that's a paraphrase. But look, he says in, in chapter 3, I'm over the hill. Why would you look at an old goat like me as a possibility for marriage? He's old. She's young. There is nothing in this text that indicates that there is any romantic interest in either person's part, Ruth or Boaz, at this stage of the game. When he speaks to her, he calls her my daughter. Now, i got to tell you, I'm not a grandpa. And so when I, when I speak to young ladies, I try to think of them as my daughters. And there is, that's a category, is it not, fathers? Is that not a special category? When you embrace somebody as your daughter, 
Nobody else better be doing anything to harm. That is just a real dangerous thing to do. And so that's the mindset of Boaz. He is, he is a, a man of courage. He is a man with whom I wouldn't want to do battle. And he is a man who sees a helpless potential victim and he stands in her stead. And uh, I don't see romance as anything uh, at all yet in this picture. And I would say romance comes remarkably late. Okay, consideration of character. Well, Naomi's pretty passive in this and certainly not prominent and that is the author telling us that the real characters as we know will be Ruth and Boaz. What are the indications of Ruth's character? When you hear the foreman, when when Boaz comes to the field and he says, whose woman is this? The foreman not only identifies her as Ruth the Moabitess, but he also says she got here early She's worked hard, and she hasn't been sitting down hardly at all. In other words, she's a hard worker. <laughs> i got to tell you, folks, that counts for a lot. I call that the sweat factor. When I look at people's character, one of the questions I ask myself is, how hard do they work? And I don't care whether that's physical work or other kinds of work. She worked hard, and the foreman had that part down right. Boaz. When he speaks of her and her character, by the way, notice, I said no romance. He doesn't say, who's the babe? He does not say anything, nor does the author say anything to us about her physical appearance. He says to her, when she says, why are you so kind? He said, because I know, in effect, he says, I know about your character. I've heard about you and how you dealt with your mother-in-law and have cared for her after the death of her husband and sons. That counts for me. But the other things that he says are even more significant because, as I said the last time when we were in chapter 1, they're all related to the Abrahamic covenant. You've left your parents. That's what God told Abraham to do. You've left your family. You've left your homeland. That's what God told Abraham to do. And you have now come and embraced this people who you didn't know. You've come to a strange, unknown people and land, and you've identified with them. And then he says, I love this, because that's where he catches the heart uh, of Ruth's heart and where it's at. He says, you have come to seek refuge under the wings of God. See, in the final analysis, it's not just about caring for a widow, Naomi. In the final analysis, she came to Israel because she came to seek God's protection and favor. And the beauty of that is that she's going to get that through this instrument, Boaz, who's going to protect and who's going to provide with the purest of motives. But here's a woman who has great character and now she takes the initiative in seeking to go to the field and to work in order to make provision for her mother-in-law character of Boaz I I look at Boaz and his workers and, and I have to say to you employee and em, employer employee relationships I have not been in many businesses where the owner of the business comes in and said 
the Lord's blessing be upon you. And where the employees responded back, and the Lord bless you. Now, I got to tell you that I think that really counts. Something is different about this man. By the way, when Ruth comes and asks permission, lest, lest we should think that he is only selectively being kind to one person. I know that he gives favoritism to her. But lest we think that he only is kind to Ruth, when she comes to the foreman and asks permission to glean in the absence of Boaz to that point, the foreman grants her permission. As a Moabite, he knows that. As a Moabite, as a widow, he knows who she is and he says yes. That tells me that Boaz had a standing policy of caring for those who were in need. And that tells me a lot about the character of, of uh, Boaz. The things that he found noble in Ruth are a reflection of the kind of man he was and the values that he had. And then his protection and provision. His great concern initially is that she not be placed in a, in a, in a place of, of vulnerability where others would take advantage of her weakness and her lack of care. In effect, he stands in the place of the one who should be there to look out for her as a daughter. He takes that place. And then he provides as well, as you know, in extra ways to meet her material needs. So I have to say to you, and then when I look at his comments about her and he speaks in terms of, in effect, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, he doesn't name it, but he values what she's done because it is exactly what God called the father of Israel to do. And she did it. So it seems to me that that speaks exceedingly uh, highly of Boaz. And I doubt that any of us have any questions about his character. Okay. Let's talk about some uh, conclusions and uh, applications. Why I changed my mind about tithing. I realized that in the midst of the debate, I had fallen into the trap of talking about percentages and all of that as though if the guy stays, if somebody stays within this percentage, they're all right. And if they stay outside this percentage, well, that's another story. And, and, I, and I got to thinking about Boaz, where you don't really have a, while the corners of the field and, and leaving that which falls on the ground, that's pretty general stuff. And, and you got a lot of range to be stingy or generous. And, and I just see uh, that this text is saying, not only was he a man who had regard for the law, remember, doing what's right in your own eyes by Deuteronomy is acting in disregard for the law. Doing what is right in God's eyes is keeping the law. But what I see is Boaz is a man who doesn't just say, all right, what does the law say? You know, and how, you know, how wide do my corners of my field need to be? Here's a guy who goes way above and beyond it. Why? Because he loves generosity. Or, to put it in different terms, he loves to be like God. He loves to show the same generosity and kindness and protection and provision that God shows to us. That is just so incredible. And that's why I basically said, tear up my paper. 
the issue is not percentages. It's not little picky uni details. The issue is, what is our heart? And Boaz is the gold standard. He's the gold standard. Here's the man we ought to look at in terms of charity and not some miserly person who's pinching their pennies uh, and giving God as little as they can. So I changed my mind about giving. If I want to think about it, I go to Boaz. All right, the providence of God. What you see, especially in chapter 2, but in all of the book of Ruth is, God is at work in spite of appearances. God is at work in spite of, of circumstances. So far as Ruth is concerned, when she chose not to go back to Moab, she chose a life of widowhood. It never entered her mind. I know I don't, it doesn't say that in exactly those terms, but it seems to me that in everything she does, she's not saying, well, I'm going to Israel because I'm getting me a husband. No, she's saying, I'm going to Israel because I'm going to take care of this woman and I'm going to embrace their God and I'll die there. Whether she has a husband or children, that is way out of her mindset. But God, in his sovereign care, has this one man. And remember, she doesn't need just a man, right? She doesn't need just any man, Moabite or Israelite. She needs one of the tribe of Judah, and she needs one who is a near relative. She has no clue that that man exists. That's why we're introduced to him in the beginning of chapter 2, and we're finally told, aha, and she's told, here he is. He meets the specs. Now, again, it still hasn't come together, but what we see, what I see, is the sovereign, gracious hand of God providing for and protecting his people and preserving the messianic line. Remember, this is the line through whom Messiah is going to come. God made a promise back in Genesis that the seed of the woman would be the Savior. And now we know it's the seed of the line of Judah that will be the Savior. And in 2 Samuel, we'll learn it's the seed of David from whom the Savior will come. The messianic line is here at issue. And in what appears to be impossible circumstances, God preserves the providence of God. And not just the providence of God, but the character of God. God delights to be kind to his people. If somehow if there's a different picture of God, I must say a picture like Naomi has, where God is somehow dealing her a bad hand. God has her on the wrong side. That's not what God is like at all. God is a super Boaz. Boaz is just a picture of what God is like. He delights in mercy and compassion. Okay, I'm going to just toss this one out into the air. Immigration and the treatment of foreigners, folks. I know that's a hot topic. All I'm saying is this text has got things to say about that. Whatever our opinions may be on the subject, God cared about foreigners. And I don't think that we ought to let this text slip by without saying that that is there. And by the way, foreigners are deeded, dealt with on an equal term, are they not? They're dealt with equally with widows and orphans, Israelite widows and Israelite orphans. So they're all dealt with on an equal plane. I'll say a little bit more about that in a, in a moment. Employer-employee relations. 
I, I, I've got a hobby horse that I must confess I've been riding for a while and it's probably getting worse. But I, I have this hang-up about people who look at missionaries who go out and, and get supported and so on as first-class citizens and all the rest as sort of second-class citizens. And if you can't do anything great, like be a missionary, then at least cough up the money and help them be great. And, and, and I know that's, a, that's an exaggeration, but it somehow people have, just like a woman sometimes will say, well, I'm just a housewife. Huh, that isn't square with Scripture. We ought not to accept that. And for somebody to say, well, I'm just a businessman. Look, look at the impact this man has had. Now, if he's the kind of guy I, I, I'm thinking he is, then he probably has helped save his area from oppression by enemy armies. If he's the kind of man that I'm thinking he is, his faith has somehow been communicated to and embraced by at least some of his employees. What better place for him to be than to be a businessman who represents God? I I just can't imagine any any greater thing than than what uh, God has enabled him and, and other businessmen to do. Welfare. Well, here's a good one, but let me take a shot at it. God provides food, not money. Notice that? Almost never does God provide money, but he does provide food because, of course, that is essential to life. He provides work, not welfare. (laughs) There's a difference. I mean, if somebody wants to go out and work in those fields, they'll eat. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That was certainly true in the Old Testament. You didn't sit there and wait for somebody to bring you the bread and to butter it for you and to hand it to you. It was there if you wanted to go and to work for it. He provides equally for all in need. When you look at the categories where it talks about the corners of the field and the gleaning, it includes widows, orphans, and aliens. They're all dealt with on the same plane. Uh, This one, I I couldn't help it. I just fell into a little political trap. But it links leaders' income with giving to the poor. You may think I'm straining at this. I'm really not. There were two ways in which the poor, the orphans and the widows, were cared for. One was this gleaning thing. The other was that there was a, 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 a tithe that was taken every three years. You see that in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. It was a tithe taken every three years. And the tithe was for widows, orphans, aliens, and Levites. And I couldn't help but think, it's like Congress gets whatever the people on welfare get. Wouldn't that be a switch? If, if, if the people on welfare got exactly what the people in Congress got or vice versa, it would change your whole perspective, folks. Levites were the ones who were to teach the law and encourage people to do what's right. So if the Levites gained from the teaching of what people were to do, the aliens, the widows, and the orphans gained with them. I just find that adorable. Love it. Okay. All right. Um, Five. God provided in a way that preserves and promotes their dignity. Isn't it interesting that in this text that this woman, Ruth, could be seen to be a woman of great and noble character in her gleaning? 
This is not some category of shame into which God has placed people. It is a category in which her honorable, faithful state is reflected. And it seems to me that it's not a state in which she is permanently cast. It is a state from which she may, by effort and by God's grace, be removed. And she is. So that she will be taken from this lowest status and raised to this status because it was not, it was not demeaning for a person in need to work for their well-being. It's a place of honor. God honors her with work as he honors all the rest of us with work as well. His welfare, his care, Protects the weak from abuse. Boy, there is nobody, nobody more abused. I think when I was working more with the criminal system, I mean, when I was working in prison, one of the one of the most likely victims was a welfare person, people whose checks were stolen, intimidated, whatever. Those people don't have power. They don't have rights. And this system, God protected the weak from abuse. And notice that this doesn't go around in some governmental way and forcibly collect what somebody else thinks they ought to give and then hand it off to to the poor. It gives a person of means the opportunity, now I would say, and obligation, to minister to others generously out of what God has given to them. That is a far cry from a lot of the redistribution talk that we hear these days. This is God's way of those who have means ministering to those who don't. All right, seeking your life's partner. We're getting close to e-harmony now. One, I just want to say this about interracial marriage. It's in the Bible. There were older generations, and and I I have married a number of interracial couples. There were generations in the past, and there may be those today, who somehow have got it in their mind that this is just wrong. And all I can say to you is, then, then you better tell God about it, because here it is. And, and in fact, I think one of the ways in which God has blessed us as a church is, early on in our existence, God brought Jerry and Sharon Johnson to us. And I think they helped to, sh- to shape the way we think and act about that. So it it delights me to see that. And and isn't that what the body of Christ is about? All of these people being brought together? Okay, interracial marriage is at least here in the Bible. Would eHarmony have matched Boaz and Ruth? I don't think so. I haven't, I haven't gone, I I went out to their website and I snooped around a little bit. Hey folks, (laughs) I did not, I did not sign up. I did not sign up. But when I was, when I was looking at, and they talk about you match them in all these different areas, I, what I was looking for is what are those areas? Now, let me tell you how Ruth and Boaz don't match. They don't match by race, right? And, and, and in Jewish circles, folks, that's huge. That's huge. Um, they, don't ra- they don't match by culture. They haven't grown up with the same cultural values and all of that. It isn't there. They don't match socially. If I understand the text correctly, Boaz is at the top of the social scale. 
That's what it's saying when it says he's a gibor hail. He's a man of great esteem, but a man of mighty valor. She says to him, I am one who is not even worthy to be considered as one of the lowest levels of slave. You don't get any lower than that. And yet, in spite of that huge social gap, that wasn't the area of compatibility that God thought was important. Age. She's young. He's old. How young? I don't know. How old? I don't know. But different enough that eHarmony would have bumped them. They wouldn't have made it, I don't think. And a lot of other people, too. I don't think it would have happened. So, here they are, that different. And yet, God brings them together. Here's the thing that brought them, I I think, that really welded them together. And they see it not in the context of filling out some form and sending it in with a picture. But they find it in the context of selflessly serving others as they worship God. That's where they find it. They're worshiping God. And here's the interesting thing. I I said the term that is used for him is Gibor Heil, a mighty man of valor. The term that is used for her in chapter 3 is the last term, Heil. Verse 11, And my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all the people in my city know that you are a woman of excellence. You want to know what their compatibility was? It was there. It was there in their commitment to God and in their character and in their service. They both had a heart for ministry to the poor. Did they not? They both did. She was ministering from the bottom up. He was ministering from the top down. But the reality was they were kindred spirits. That's what bound them together. Not, not some great uh, uh, love at first sight or, or, or whatever, but, but rather a, a bonding of spirit in the things that are important to God. That's where their compatibility was. So what do we learn about dating and marriage? Well, I would say we don't obsess about marriage. We don't obsess about it. You remember when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks to, to uh, those who are single and basically says, it may well be that the single lifestyle is for you because the most important thing in this world is serving God. The question is, will you serve God better in marriage or by remaining single? Now, I think we would all agree, Boaz and Ruth will do better together, Right? Because that's where the Messiah is going to come from. They really do need to be married. But sometimes that's not true. But if we are obsessed with marriage and the bearing of children as though that is the essence of life, we're in trouble. Because we're going to pursue that, and I think we're going to pursue it with such energy that we lose sight that what's really important is our trust in God and, and in His providence that He will provide and protect in terms of every need that we have. And that includes the need for a mate. Am I saying that eHarmony is altogether wrong? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, where is our heart and where is our attitude? We ought to be serving God and we ought to be looking and evaluating people, not in terms 
of, of, of their dimensions, of their picture, of, of whatever it is that razzle-dazzles other, we ought to be looking at them in terms of their character and their relationship to God. And I want to say that I think in, in, our, in our narrow cultural point of view, we think that people have to be so much alike, that, you know, you and your, your wife, uh, you know, are you compatible to you when you go home? Are you both going to want to sit down and watch the Dallas Cowboys? I don't care. Do, I mean, do you care about whether that's the essence of what's going to hold your relationship together? Uh, you know, here are my favorite tastes. Man, that is not here. And I would say to you who are married, you know, if you're finding trouble, finding the common ground, then you better go back and look at your love for God and your commitment to do what God loves to do and your service in that. That is enough. That is enough. That's the only compatibility that I see that is absolutely required. Okay, one last thing. Isn't this a picture of Christ and his church? You know, the, the police cars sometimes will go and they'll say, to serve and protect. And, and I would say that the motto for Boaz is to protect and provide. Was that not his motto, really? Wasn't that what his passion was in all of this? Isn't that what God's passion is for us? Isn't that his heart? That he looks down on those who are lowly those who were the lowest of the low, so to speak, on the sin scale. He has a heart full of mercy and compassion, and he loves to save. He loves to take of his generosity, of his riches, which, of course, are all summed up in Christ, and out of those riches to minister to our deep needs. He loves to protect from eternal destruction from all of the things that are counterproductive in our life, from all of the threats to us, and he loves to provide. And I want to say to you this morning, if you've never come to embrace Jesus Christ in that way, and you missed the opportunity, then you better look at Ruth again, because it's a wonderful thing to be joined to him whose love is to minister to us in our need. Nothing is greater than that. And nothing is greater for Christians than to carry that out and reflect it in our lives. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for Ruth and for Boaz. Thank you for the way that you bring them together. Help our young people, Father, to see that the things that they do and the decisions that they make before marriage have so much impact on the kind of marriage they may have. I think about Ruth. If she had decided to stay with her people, she would not have been married to Boaz. She would not have the blessing of being a part of the Messianic line. Her decisions are so critical to her being able to be joined together with Boaz in a very fruitful and productive way for your kingdom. Help our young people not to be looking at those things which our culture values, but to trust in you and to love the things that you love, and to commit themselves to serving you through serving others. And in that process, trusting you to bring about, bring around the mates whom they may have for a lifetime, and join together in doing what you love. In Jesus' name, amen.